Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. We are in Ephesians chapter 4. And we are taking our time here because uh, there's a lot of really, really important things for us to glean in terms of our identity in Christ and our identity in the ministry. Um, but I want to begin this morning by uh, telling a story from Scripture and posing a question. Uh, posing a question. Let me see if I can't find my notes. There we are. In Luke chapter 23, uh, Christ, uh, Christ has been condemned already at this point in our story uh, and, and been made guilty uh, by a court of men and has been nailed to the cross. And uh, for, for many of you who know and have visualized this before, um, you know that this was a moment of great agony for Christ and he... Uh, as he struggles, he's struggling for his breath. Uh, now, two men were convicted of, of thievery, and they hung on crosses on either side of him as well. And in this moment, uh, one of the men has the audacity to, to mock Christ. And uh, so he spends, this man spends his last moments, his last few breaths, shaming the creator of the universe, if you can imagine. Luke chapter 23, verse uh, 36 begins this way, and the, the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Mm. Sorry. And saying... <clears throat> If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. So, you know, here we have this man who's... who's on the verge of death, and he finds the, uh, the energy to, to mock Jesus and say, hey, if, if you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, then where's your power to save us? But on the other side of Jesus was another man who, with his final breath, contends for Christ and cries out to him for salvation. Verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. And this man hath, not, uh, hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus responds with this interesting statement. He says, Verily, I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So this is amazing. This is a beautiful story. Um, 
It's amazing that this man, whose sin led him to capital punishment, a man who had nothing left to offer the world, it's the very, in the throes of death, if you will, he has not a single good work left in him, nothing he can do to redeem himself of all that he's done wrong. And yet he simply confesses his sin. He cries out to Christ for help. And he finds redemption there. Now, before we get into our sermon today, I want to point out to you that there are certainly people in this room who are in need of that kind of redemption. Some of you today who know that you're in need of the saving work of Jesus Christ. You know that if today that you set out for the remainder of your life, to do as many good works and as good deeds as you possibly could, you would never make up for the fact that you've sinned against the living God. You know you're not holy. You know you're in need. You know something ain't quite right about your life. And I want to plead with you today that, that today is an opportunity, as we uncover the truths of Scripture today, today is an opportunity for you to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior to trust on him, to know the the power of his death, burial, and resurrection and lay lay claim on salvation uh, for your life. Now, further than that, um, in anticipation of today's sermon, I I wanted to pose an important question related to this story, okay? And and so this is kind of a, a, a theological question, if you will. And it goes like this. When Christ said to the thief, today... Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What do you take that to mean? Well, what do you believe that that means? Now, the man asks, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And Christ doesn't make reference to his kingdom. He makes reference to a place called paradise. Now, what do, what, what do we suppose that that means? Did he mean heaven when he said that? Where do you, where do you suppose? Let's go a little step further. And, and, and just, it, again, we're going to study this today. Let's go a step further. Where do you suppose Jesus was for three days and three nights after he died and before he resurrected? Where was he? So this is a, this is a significant doctrinal question uh, that we're going to answer in today's sermon. But also, uh, as we derive a biblical conclusion on this subject, we're also going to discover a very important implication that affects our identity and how we understand, uh, understand ourselves to be. Okay. You guys with me? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. And thank you for so great a people. Thank you for, uh, Lord, just the the, the cacophony of voices today in this room as we we lifted up the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that, Lord, as you heard that, that it was a sweet savor. And, um, Lord, that, that, that you would recognize that we are a people in need of you. And, uh, and, and that you would hear the cry of our hearts and respond by, by pouring out grace uh, through your word today. And that your word would provide us with exactly what it is that we need for our lives. Uh, Lord, that we would come into a greater understanding of who we are in light of you. And Lord, that we would fully appreciate and value who you've called us to be. We love you and we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this time. We pray that you would use it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by reading in verse 7 of chapter 4. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure 
of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we've come a long way in our study. Uh, we've, we've learned a lot. And what we set out to do, what our goal was in learning from this book called Ephesians, was uh, what our personal identity truly is. And we wanted to, and I think we've done this so far, we wanted to point out uh, that our identity itself, who we are, is secure in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That everything that we are, everything we understand ourselves to be, should spring from the knowledge that God is our Father and that our future is found in Him. That we don't need to grapple with our inner selves. We don't need to fumble about to uncover the best version of ourselves, which is what many of us spend our lives doing. That's what we were taught. We were taught by our parents and by our teachers and the people around us that if we just work hard enough, we can be fulfilled. We can be happy. But what we've learned is that that's not, that that's not true. <laughs> And, and I think most of the people in this room have lived enough life to know now that no matter how hard you try, you'll never just do better and you'll never live your best life. We need to find ourselves in Jesus Christ. But now we're at a turning point in our series because what, what we're, we're beginning to learn now as we move forward is that we can't fully realize our identity outside who we are in the context of the church. As Christians, our goals are not personal goals. Our objectives aren't self-serving. Our treasures aren't temporal. We make an investment in people, and people make an investment in us. We, can't, we don't get to be cowboys for Christ. We don't get to, to, to roam the open plains and search for, you know, a good Christian life. No, we need the local church. We, we need to knit ourselves to a body of believers so that we might receive all of the goodness that people have to offer us and that they might receive all the goodness that God's given us to pour out into them. And so we're left with our very first key point and the one that we need to establish right out front. And that's this, is that the church frames and cultivates our identity within the commonwealth of God's kingdom, all right? So what we understand from Scripture is that those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we may not be immediately brought into a physical kingdom, which we're going to talk about a little bit today. We're not brought immediately into a physical kingdom. We're brought into a spiritual kingdom. And that spiritual kingdom is comprised of, of believers just like you and me. That we make up, the church makes up a spiritual kingdom. And for that very reason, we are in need of one another because we can't, we can't pursue the kingdom of Christ if we're not living and integrating ourselves into the kingdom of Christ. We need each other. You know, during the announcements, David mentioned uh, church hopping. 
And I know how this works. I, I, I've, got, I've got friends that have been church hopping for 20 years. And they don't know how to stay in one church for more than a few months or a couple of years. Before that church just doesn't suit them anymore and they move on to something else. Because, because the problem with the way that, that we think in the world today is that we are constantly looking for a church that meets all of our needs. They meet all of our preferences. The, the worship and the music is the way that we want it to sound. The people in that congregation look the way we want them to look. And what we're ultimately looking for is a church where everyone looks like us and behaves like us and thinks like us. And listen to me, you'll never find it. It doesn't exist. So rather than thinking that way, abandon that way of thinking and recognize that what we really need in our life is a congregation of believers that are diverse from us. Different ages, different races, different backgrounds, different experiences, different levels of maturity. That's what we need in our lives. And we don't just need that. What we need to do is we need to lean into it so that those people would sharpen us and hold us accountable. They challenge us change the way that we think so that it becomes in greater accordance with the word of God. And in turn, what we should do is to pour our lives, our prayers, our preaching, our friendship, our fellowship into others as well. And we will come to benefit each other in a way that will please our heavenly father. That's what we need. We need a church that frames and cultivates our identity within the commonwealth of God's kingdom. Now, one of the ways that the church helps us is by helping us learn how we're gifted. That's one of the ways that the church helps us, is that when we're with other people and we're living in community with the church and we're doing ministry together, one of the things that, that, that really benefits us, one of many things, is that we together get to learn our gifts together. And so, you know, this is what we always encourage people to do is we encourage people when they're going through discipleship is to find a ministry to invest in. And that might look like the, that might look like the AV team. Okay, that might look like the hospitality team. That might look like working in children's ministry. That might look like joining yourself to the web team. I don't know. Amen, Alvaro? Yeah? <laughs> but the idea is that all of us would get our feet wet that we wade out into the pool of ministry. And, you know, maybe we start slow at first. We're unsure of what we might discover about ourselves. We might realize if we join ourselves to the children's ministry that we're terrible with children. <laughs> we might discover that. And so you commit yourself to six months or a year of doing that before you move on to something else. Some of you might be on the hospitality team, and as you watch your friends in ministry in the children's ministry, might discover, oh my gosh, my heart longs for that. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And after a, a, a tenure with the hospitality team, you transition into another work. And this is how we together live life and learn and discover what our gifting is and how we ought to apply ourselves in ministry. After, man, uh, 17 years of being with this group of people, I've learned so much about who I am and I'm still learning. I'm still learning about how God has gifted me and how I'm supposed to apply myself to the work of ministry. And so please, join yourself in the work of ministry. This is what the Word of God says in verse 7. It says, is that right? That verse is not, is that right on the slide? That's not right. You guys have a Bible, right? Look at verse 7 and read with me. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. 
So every one of us, every single one of us is given grace. We're given, we're given unmerited favor. Okay, I mean, you, you realize at this point, if you're familiar with Jesus Christ at all, you recognize that you don't deserve any of the things that he's given you. But that he bestows it as an act of love. And that he loves you regardless of who you are and what you've done. And so this is an act of grace as he measures out the gifts. So Christ in his grace has measured out spiritual gifts for each of us that are intended to edify the body of Christ. Now certainly in our natural state, all of us have skills, right? And I, I still can't, I'm old enough now, like every time I say the word skills, I can't help but think of that scene in Napoleon Dynamite, right? You guys with me? You guys watch that movie? People still watch that movie? Yeah. Right. All of us have, you hope not. You're not a fan, Eric? Big surprise. <laughs> Eric, what's your favorite movie? I want the people to know. I know, I know what your favorite movie is. What's my favorite movie? It's that one, uh, like, zombie apocalypse movie. Yeah, no, what is it? The one that's the video game is based on. No, with the vampires, the blood-sucking vampires. That's not? No. I thought you loved that movie. Eric is full of surprises, by the way. That is an onion that you will never, is a never-ending onion. Just peel and peel and peel. But all of us, all of us have natural gifts, right? All of us have skills that, that, that we're you know, we're prone to. You know, some of us are gifted with physical and spatial intelligence that makes us good at sports and and physical activities working with our body. Some of us have intellectual intelligence that makes us prone to study and to the accumulation of knowledge. Some of us have practical intelligence that makes us good at problem solving and finding solutions to difficult situations. Some of us have social and emotional intelligence that makes us prone to understanding and empathizing with people. And all of these skills are very good. These, these innate skills and these proclivities are actually, they're a gift from God. They really are. And, uh, and learning to explore and to understand these aspects of who you are will help you understand which career to pursue, right? Or, or what hobbies that you should take up. And you should even find ways in which your skills, the skills that you have, should benefit the kingdom of God. Skills absolutely have the ability to, to, to benefit the work of Christ. But I want to say this. These natural skills in our flesh have very little value without the spiritual gifts complementing them. We need the spiritual Christ, uh, the gifts that, that Christ has given us. And these are, these are supernatural gifts. These are gifts that allow us to find unique roles and responsibilities within the mission of God. And so here in Ephesians, we are told that in his grace, Christ measures out gifts to every member of the body of Christ. And that means you. You've not, you have not been left out, right? As he's doling out gifts, he has remembered you. And so what an amazing thing it is to know that God has done something very special. And he's, he has, he's made you to be unique. Right? I think we all struggle with the idea of uniqueness. We're, we're all told all the time how, you know, by our parents how unique and special we are. You know, um, you know my mama says I'm cute. 
So, you know, all of us, all of us, you know, are snowflakes in the eyes of our parents, and we're all very special. Uh, but the truth is, uh, in the eyes of Christ, uh, we are unique as well. He's outfitted us each in very, very special ways, and, and he's given and measured out to you gifts. He's measured out to you gifts. And uh, I think that's an incredible thing to know. We're going to look at this more in depth, but before we do, I want us to see the value of the gifts that God's given us. I want us to see the, 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 what it took for us to get the gifts that he's given us. We're going to look at this more in depth, but, but before we do, Paul takes us on another sidebar. You guys know that Paul likes to do that? Paul likes these sidebar things. He takes us down this road over here before he brings us back. And that's what he does today. Paul takes us on a sidebar here, and he explains to us the work of Christ and what he did in order for us to get the gifts that we've received. And it was a mighty work that he did. So, so back to the question from our introduction. Okay? Back to the question from our introduction. Where was Christ for those three days? What, what was he doing? So Ephesians 4.8 says this, Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So we know from the passage that, that Christ ascended up into heaven. We understand that, right? That makes sense. He ascended up into heaven and, and that with his ascension, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he bestowed gifts on humanity. Now, what about this statement, though, that he led captivity captive? What, what does that mean when God tells us that there were captives that were brought into the captivity of Christ? What does that mean? Now, up, upon further study, what we find is that during those three days and three nights, Christ's body was in the grave, and yet his soul and spirit were busy executing a jailbreak. That's what he was doing. Okay, so you're thinking, here's a jailbreak? Okay, what, do you, what is it that you mean by that? What is, I mean, so this may or may not be a familiar concept to you. Okay, so we're going to study it, and you'll have a better understanding of, of, of what I'm talking about. The Bible describes for us a geographic place in the heart of the earth called Sheol. We sang about it, okay? We sang about it today. I don't know if that was like Harrison being clever because he knew where we were headed or if it was just the Holy Spirit. I think it was Harrison being clever. no. Wow, God's at work. So, <clears throat> um, so, so this place, Sheol, is in the heart of the earth. And within Sheol, there are two land masses, okay? Two, two geographic land masses divided by a great gulf. Now, one of these land masses is referred to as hell, okay? Teresa, why are you looking at me like that? Are you worried about where I'm going with this? She gave me a crazy look. Like, are you really about to talk about hell? Yes, I am. It's going to be talking about hell, y'all. So one of these land masses is called hell, and the other is called Abraham's bosom. Now, we're familiar with the idea of hell. I mean, even if you've, you've just got an idea or a, a, a conceptual working of that idea from, like, cartoons and things and movies or, like, vampire movies that, you know, if that, you're into that kind of thing. So, so... So we, we've heard of hell. Now, hell is a place of eternal torment. And it's, and it's a place that's, that's considered a place of separation from God. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. 
and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's not, it's not real popular to uh, talk about hell much in church anymore. But then again, it's not real uh, popular to preach the Bible in churches anymore. And I think that for many uh, Christians, they're ashamed of this doctrine. But I think, I think the knowledge of hell is ab- absolutely critical to our understanding of heaven. All right, we, we, every one of us should, should wrestle with where it is that we're going for eternity. Right? When the lights turn out, what's on the other side? And, uh, and hell is an absolute reality of Scripture. Now, on the other hand, Abraham's bosom is a place in Scripture uh, of temporal paradise. It's a temporary place of paradise. It's Edenic in this way. Okay? Now, back to hell. Hell is a place of judgment for those who refuse to know and obey the God of the Bible. Second Thessalonians just told us that. But Abraham's bosom is a place of rest for the Old Testament saints who obeyed the God, who, who, who knew and obeyed the God of the Bible. Okay, so, so there's, there's our presupposition. This is where, where we're going. I'm going to prove that to you right now. Uh, if you've never heard of this, if this is new information to you, that's okay. It's a fairly simple concept that the Bible is brief about, yet very, very clear about. Okay, so let's read Christ's description of Abraham's bosom beginning in Luke chapter 16. He's telling a story about two men. Verse 19 says this, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. He had leprosy. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Just terribly graphic uh, depiction. And it, was, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. So what we learn is that while the rich man lived comfortably on earth, because he didn't know and obey the God of the Bible, he went to hell. He went to a place of torment. Now Lazarus, on the other hand, while, while having a miserable life, a terrible life on earth, found himself in Abraham's bosom because he must have known and followed God. You with me so far? So as we continue reading, uh, I want you to notice the, the, the imagery. Verse 23, And in hell he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and, and seeth Abraham afar off. It seems appropriate. Abraham's bosom. Abraham, Abraham would be there, right? So he, he looks afar off, and he, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So the rich man, he sees Lazarus with Abraham uh, far off. And so what we know here is that, that Abraham is the managing patriarch of this place called paradise. And that's what we can gather so far from our story. And, and in some irony, the rich man is asking Abraham if he would grant Lazarus the ability to extend him some grace. 
I mean, despite the fact that he didn't extend any grace to Lazarus in their lives, you know, he wants Lazarus to, to come over with a bit of water for his tongue. Verse 25, and Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy goods, uh, thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So Abraham first gives him a spiritual answer. He gives him a very spiritual answer. He says, he basically tells him, look, you reap what you sow. That's the first thing that he tells him. He says, you reap what you sow. Each of us receive the consequences of our faith or lack thereof. Now then he provides the physical answer. Look, man, even if we wanted to, there is a geographic barrier between you and I. There's a, there's a cosmological phenomenon, a great gulf that would keep us from crossing from here, this place, paradise, to that place, hell, and keep you from hell passing over into paradise. We cannot reach one another. So now that the rich man has heard that, and he can't get any sort of satiation for his pain, he can't find any sort of relief, he asks a much more heart-wrenching question. Verse 27, Then he said, I, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So he asked that Lazarus would be sent back from the dead to tell his brothers of their need to repent and to turn to the God of their fathers. And this reminds us, um, this reminds us that we, we have but such a short time in this life and how precious and important souls are. Because there's coming, there's coming a day where there is no going back. It's often said that, you know, um, you know in contrast to this, that, that heaven is a place where you'll no longer be able to share the gospel. Like once you pass over into eternity, the mission that we've been given is no longer in function. You have one life to live and one opportunity to receive or reject Christ. One opportunity. And is of, of the utmost consequence of what you decide, you know. So in verse 29, Abraham said unto him, very tough, tough answer. Tough answer. But the one that we need to hear. They have Moses and the prophets. Now they didn't have Moses physically, did they? They had they had the letters of Moses, the scriptures, the Pentateuch, right? They had the Torah. 
So they have Moses and they have the prophets and the letters of the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, what he tells them is that if they will not hear the testimony of the scriptures, then they won't hear the testimony of Lazarus. In other words, we, we, we are obligated as human beings to consider the validity of the words within this book. It's our responsibility to wrestle with and consider who Christ is to us based on the testimony of the prophets. This is what we have. And this is what the rich man's brothers had. And he said, nay, uh, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, Abraham said in return unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So warning for all of us that we must make a decision about who God is to us today because we're not promised tomorrow. Now from the story, uh, we, we understand uh, that Abraham's bosom was the place where Old Testament saints went as a holding place, a resting place, until Christ died and came to rescue them. Okay, so just want to make sure everybody understands. We're all together here, right? So where did all of those, for 4,000 years, where did all of those Old Testament saints go? Where did, where did David go when he died? What about Elijah? Right? Where did, where did the saints of the Old Testament go? Well, they didn't go to heaven because Christ hadn't resurrected yet. He hadn't granted, he hadn't granted his children access to the physical place called heaven. He hadn't, he hadn't done that yet. It required the resurrection of Christ. And so until his resurrection, he established a place called paradise, called Abraham's bosom, where the Old Testament saint, saints departed to when they died. And it wasn't until Christ descended into the lower parts to lead captivity captive, to take them out of that temporary holding place of Abraham's bosom and deliver them into the presence of God, the Father in heaven, um, it required that. It required that work. And it wasn't until he did that that they had access to heaven. Okay, so let's look at Ephesians 4, 9 and try to understand what it's saying based on that reality. Now, now that he ascended, you know, now that he has gone to heaven, what is it? What's the big deal that he would also have descended into the, first into the lower parts of the earth? So before he ascended, what's the big deal that he would have gone down into the lower parts first in the earth so that he could deliver captivity captive? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now, now, let's, let's continue to prop this up with the scriptures, not, not with my opinions or my thoughts. Let's prop this up with what the word of God says. In Matthew 12, 40, it affirms this truth. It says, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? Okay, yeah, all right. So, so, so Matthew 12 is Jesus himself saying, look, he's prophesying, look, I, I will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. First Peter 4, 6 says this, that 
while he was down there, he actually had some business to do, and that was that he preached. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh and live according to God in the spirit. And so speaking of this time that he spent in the heart of the earth, he preached the gospel. Revelation 1.18 tells us that he now has the authority over Sheol. Revelation 1.18, I am he, this is him describing himself, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. See, Abraham's bosom was made empty by Christ. And not only was it made empty, but he snatched the keys of death and hell, and he is now the gatekeeper for all who pass in and out. So where, so where, where did the, the question is, where did the thief on the cross go? Where, where did all the Old Testament saints go when they died? Well, they went where Abraham went. Genesis 25, 8 says this. Then Abraham gave up the ghost. This is where Abraham passes away. He, he dies. He gave up the ghost and died in a good old age and an old man and full of years and what? He was gathered to his people. Abraham was gathered to his people together in paradise. Right? There was, a, there was a gathering together of the Old Testament saints so that they would be together. And heaven wasn't an option yet because Christ had not died and raised from the dead. Now, here's the, here's the, so you understand, there's a doctrine at work here. Yes? This provides us with a framework for understanding Scripture. Yep. But let's, let's, let's ask ourselves, at least from a devotional perspective, what was, what was Paul's intention in bringing all of this up? Well, certainly he wants us to better understand Jesus. He wants us to understand, but, but, but more than that, more than that, because the context is the gifts, he wants us to understand that the same Savior who was gracious enough to rescue his children and give them heaven is the same Savior who felt it necessary to prioritize the dispensing of gifts. So in other words, with the, the same level of precision and care that he executed his plan to defeat and deliver the mighty host into heaven, is the same level of priority and precision that he's used to provide you with spiritual gifts. He gave his life. You guys are jumping ahead of me. You're ruining my... That's supposed to be the punch there. Naveen, back up. Can you back up, man? There's a timing component to this, bro. And I'm not real good at this, man, so you got to help me out. Okay. So, so he, listen, he gave his life that we might be saved. And he defeated death to give us spiritual gifts. So what we have to know, what we have to learn is that we, we seize both with the zeal and excitement that the cost of both of those things warrant 
Okay, so so many of us, we struggle, we struggle with knowing our gifts. It's difficult for some of us to even figure out how we're gifted. But then once we start discovering it, we don't always like what we find out. You know, there's some of us who resent the gifting that God's given us, and we're pursuing some other thing. And we kind of, we kind of, we bristle at how God has made us to be. It seems odd to me that we would so zealously take hold on salvation, but be so resistant to the dispensing of the gifts, to accepting who he's made us to be. We love the salvation part. But some of us don't don't love so much who he's made us to be. And what Paul's pointing out here is that both his salvation and the dispensing of his gifts have great eternal value. So here's our key point. It's a little bit longer. Naveen, you're up. (laughs) Thank you. Christ gave us salvation to ensure, that's the wrong use of two, so Melissa will probably have to correct me on that later. (laughs) Christ gave us salvation to ensure our promise of eternity, didn't he? He sealed that thing up the day he rose from the dead. Christ gave us salvation to ensure, he promised us eternity, but he ensured it with his resurrection. Now, he also gave us gifts in that exact same moment to ensure our profit in his mission. You see the value of, so listen, the son of God went to hell, defeated death, delivered captivity captive, and dispensed gifts for you. For you he did that. This is a big deal to you personally. And that leads us to the next key point, which is this. Christ has provided you with precisely the gifting you need to make him proud. See, he knows you. He knows you. He crafted you in your mother's womb. He knew what you would look like. He knew what your life would be like. He knew all of your circumstances, both good and bad. And he loves you. At the same level of his knowledge of who you are, every hair on your head counted, he has also precisely gifted you with exactly what you need to bring him the most optimal and maximal amount of honor. And you can live that out. You can accept that reality. And you can pursue those ends. And you can make him so proud. So proud that when you get to heaven, he'll tell you, well done. Now, there are three lists of spiritual gifts given to us in the New Testament. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, there's a list. 27 through 31 as well. Romans 12, 3 through 8. And then here in Ephesians 4, 11. Now, each list is slightly different for different reasons. For different reasons, in fact. We're not going to get into all that. But you can go back and listen to the study from 1 Corinthians that we did not too long ago, at least in my mind, not too long ago. And you can look at that. Um, now, this list that we're going to look at is, is probably the least exhaustive of the list. I think it is the least exhaustive. But it's, uh, it's uh, provided for us with the intention that, that God focus less on the gifts, them, gifts themselves, but the type of gifted leaders that we find in a church and, and how they contribute to the work of perfecting and ministering and edifying the body. So, so let's, let's take a closer look with the time that we have left at the roles associated with each of these gifts. Can we do that? So the first thing is this. He gave some apostles. He gave some apostles. The office or position of leadership that was accompanied by miraculous gifts was the the office of the apostle. Now, we know as we studied in 1 Corinthians that the office of an apostle has actually passed away with the completion of God's word. That's what we believe. Okay? And so the, the, the sign gifts, those miraculous sign gifts that were given to those early apostles, they were intended to legitimize a gospel that had not yet been canonized and completed within the context of God's word. At the point that the word of God was completed, we no longer needed anything to justify or to validate the word of God. The word of God validates itself. It speaks for itself in that manner. And so, so he gave some apostles, but now we also understand that the word apostle means sent one. It means a sent one. And in the absence of the first century apostles, today we can understand that the role of the apostle is the role of the missionary. The missionary is the sent one. You guys heard of missionaries? Not a whole lot of missionaries anymore. Not a whole lot of people that are willing to go and be sent. Too comfortable here, you know. Feels good here. I think I'm just going to, you know, get a cozy blanket, snuggle up, stay put. But missionaries are a big deal to God. The fact that we would be willing to go into places in the world where the gospel is not being preached, where discipleship's not taking place, where souls have yet to be saved, is a big deal to God. And so he gave some apostles, he gave some to be sent ones, some are intended to be missionaries, and our church needs missionaries. Midtown Baptist Temple needs missionaries. We need men just like Andrew Ong and Mark Schaefer and Mike Renault, right? We need men who are willing to go. We need men, we need someone. I mean, it's never been more glaring than our situation with a church in Nairobi that has no pastor. And that's only but, that's only but one situation. Think about, think about 10 years from now. We have so many churches that need to be planted, that have yet to be planted. Midtown Baptist Temple needs to prepare people to go. We can't just be comfortable here for the rest of our lives. 
And so our church, in our church, we train missionaries and church planters. That's what we do. That's what we do. And so, so we have discipleship, which grounds people in the word of God. It establishes that foundation of God's word in your life. And then from there, as you exercise your gifts and you apply yourself, you begin to discover how God's fitly joined you to this body. And then there's a handful of people who will discover over time as they grow in God's word that they are gifted to not only pastor, but to go, to go to other places. And so at Midtown Baptist Temple, we, we train missionaries. That's what we do. And so we all, you know, it's all lovey-dovey here, right? We love each other. We, there's so many of us in this room. I can, I can look across this room and say, without a shadow of a doubt, I would give my life for the whole lot of you. You know, I, I love you so much and we love each other so much that we have to obey God. Because what we need from one another is a consistent example that we're willing to do whatever he tells us to do. Now, we can kick it on the other side. Right? It's another reason for us to understand that, that Christ delivered captivity captive because we know that we're going somewhere one day and the vacation will be real good and we'll sip a lot of virgin daiquiris together <laughs> on the beach, you know, on the beach. Or according to Sam, we'll play football in that big backyard, wherever, you know. I used to hate that song so much. When I was a kid, I was like, I remember being at church. You know, it's already hard to be at church when you're a kid sometimes, if you don't like it, all the old people. The Werther's Originals, but the, you know. And so we'd sing that song in youth group. And I remember thinking, man, people who don't like football probably don't like this song a whole lot. <laughs> throw a football. Some of you would just go right through your hands, but not in heaven, I think. I think you'd probably catch it. In heaven, you have, you, every one of us will have physical spatial gifting and we'll all be able to catch the ball. It's pretty good. That's good news. But listen, what we really, what we really need, what we need is to remember that when we're on this side on the earth, um, we'll catch up later. We have to have a perspective that, but for now we're on mission. And if that means that I have to go, I, I have to go. And love will say that we respect that and honor that. And we'll train each other for that work. He gave some prophets. The office or position of prophet was an office of leadership accompanied by gifts of preaching and, and declaring the purposes of God. And we understand that Old Testament prophets in particular had a gift of foretelling sometimes. And they often would um, speak uh, in, in terms of the inspired declarative words of God. Um, now, these purposes would actually be fulfilled by the Scripture. Okay, We don't need a prophetic word anymore because the book is closed. Okay, I don't, This is not a three-ring binder, and so I don't get to pop it open and put some more pages in the back. Okay, We don't need a prophetic word. Okay, We don't need someone to, to speak over our lives some sort of esoteric truth. We don't need that. We've got the book. But we still need preachers. We still need prophets in that, in that uh, term of the word. So today, in light of completed revelation, we have a data set that requires declaring. 
It requires declaring. The role of the prophet today is more like the work of contending for truth by declaring it every single day. And, 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 and it may mean a pulpit ministry like what I'm doing right now. It may look like this. But for most of you, it'll look like your everyday lives. It'll look like your classrooms. And it'll look like your workplace. It'll look like your neighborhood. It'll look like your friends and family. It'll look like, it'll look like wherever there's an opportunity to preach, you'll do it. You know, Jesus asked us to do that. He asked us to preach that way. Paul also makes a big deal about this in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. He says, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So the question is, is the word of God in your mouth and in your heart? You know how we'll know? You'll be preaching you'll be preaching. And in our church, we train people to preach the word. That's what we do. We train you to know the word, and we hope to, through prayer and and fellowship and accountability, cultivate a burning desire to speak it so that it would be in your mouth. That's what we want. We want every member, a minister, and that means every member, a preacher. And so whether it be in the context of your small group and learning how to share or uh, maybe going as far as being a part of LFBI and taking courses about what it means to, to share and to teach the Word of God, you should understand the book. You should know the Bible better than me. Might not take a whole lot of work, to be honest with you. <laughs> but you should strive to those ends. You should strive to know the Word of God at that level. Some evangelists, he gave some evangelists. An evangelist is a person who shares the gospel of Christ with the intention of seeing people converted to the kingdom of God. Some churches, uh, they treat the, the work of an evangelist as an office in the church. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Down in the South, it's kind of common. They'll be like the guy that's like, so what do you do? I'm, I'm an evangelist. Like, I so am I. And he's like, no, 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 I'm an evangelist. I'm like, what? Like, no, I have the office of an evangelist in the church, and I go around and I preach. My job is to preach the gospel. Like, oh, that's interesting. It's good. It's va- and it's valid. It's valid. It's valid. I'm like, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. It's just different for us culturally because here at Midtown Baptist Temple, we make a really big deal about everyone being an evangelist. So you've been saved. Well, you've been commissioned to share your testimony and to preach the gospel of Christ to every person. Okay, and so, so he's given some evangelists with the intention that the whole world would know the name of Jesus Christ. And it's true that some people are particularly gifted at it. Some people are really, really, just really gifted. It seems like every time they find themselves out in public, uh, they find themselves sharing the gospel and having conversations everywhere they go. But, but we take 2 Timothy 4, 5 seriously. This is our approach to evangelism around here. Uh, evangelism is something that all of us should do. And the admonition is this to Timothy. Paul to Timothy says, do the work of an evangelist. So whether you're gifted at it or not, do the work. Why? Why? Well, because the gospel is burning in my bones. Because I have, I have the answer for heaven and hell. I have, a, I have a word and a message that everyone needs to hear. And if I don't open my mouth, that means that some might not hear it. So we train people to be evangelists. Now, I want to point out to you that the retreat this year, 
uh, the spring retreat this year is focused on learning how to value and preach the gospel and, and what it means to, to, to share the gospel with other people and how to take that seriously. So we got a lot of awesome, I don't know if you know this yet, but, but Blade Spisa will be preaching and Miles will be preaching and Alvaro will be preaching. And am I missing anyone? Is that the lot of it? So, so man, those guys, uh, God's used those men to preach the gospel. They have something to teach us. Amen. So that's going to be very, very exciting. Also, I want to recommend, uh, you know, we offer methods of evangelism in LFBI, but you can also purchase Brian Clark's book uh, called Just Ask, which is the, the idea, the concept of the book is that, that you have the ability to share the gospel even right now and to encourage us to do that. Okay, some pastors. Uh, the office of the pastor is accompanied with gifts of preaching oftentimes, but their job is to protect and envision the church. The word pastor means shepherd, and that is what they do. They shepherd. They shepherd the flock. They feed and lead God's people so that they are healthy and living out the purposes of their mission. And we are training pastors. Can you see it happening? You can see it happening, can't you? You can see men that aren't the same today as they were yesterday because they're being trained to be pastors and they're beginning to see and own the, the, the ministry, the responsibility of ministry and the investment, the shepherding role with a greater level of maturity, right? We can, we can see that. We can see that happening. So we train pastors. Again, another reason why we have LFBI. We also have teachers. He gave some teachers. This is the supernatural ability to comprehend and order and present biblical truth, to, 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 to teach. These are the folks in our church that disciple and gifted teachers uh, lead Bible studies and gifted teachers teach in LFBI and in Foundations 2 and 3. These are folks that consume the Word of God and they daydream about how they might explain the truths that they're learning. That's usually how that works. If you're a gifted teacher, you're the type of person that studies and in the back of your mind you're saying, if I was to share this with someone else, how would I teach this in a way that it makes sense? That's how they usually think. And so there are gifted teachers. Now, we also train people to be teachers. Our church trains people to be teachers because we believe that all of you should be teaching. Are you guys picking up on this? There's, like a, there's something to this. So when we look at this gift, this, this gift list here, we recognize that while some are uniquely gifted in these areas, we all should be living and training in such a way that all of these things should be true to some degree in our lives. Does that make sense? So why do we train leaders in these areas? Well, we do it for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So here's our key point. God has called you to lead. So train as though you identify as a leader. There's so many of us in the room who are, we say to ourselves, you know, I, I love Jesus. I want to be a disciple. I want to follow God. But then in the same breath, you would say that you're not a leader. Now, all of us are leading someone. The question is, how? How are you leading them? Where are you leading them to? 
family members, friends, co-workers, you're leading them with a conversation of your life, with your lifestyle, with your words, with your behavior, with what you believe and how it comes out of you. You're leading. So the question is, why don't you see yourself as a leader? I mean, in our church, again, when we say every member a minister, we mean that everyone in this church should be discipling someone. That you get discipled in order to disciple, 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's the responsibility, is that you should be a teacher and a preacher and a, and, a, and a proclaimer of God's word. That's what you should do. You should be discipling. You should be training others also. And so in order to do that, you need to change the way that you think about yourselves and begin to see that God has made you to lead in his church. You need to identify yourself with the work of leadership. And you, you need to begin to, to train accordingly. You with me? So, look, you, you, you aren't leading if you're not growing in these areas. And it's not enough, listen to me, it's not enough for us to simply be thankful for our salvation. We need to train and understand that God has gifted us to lead people. I want to invite the uh, worship team up as we close. We'll close in a song of worship. Um, and before we do, before we sing, I want us to consider two things. First of all, if you were hanging on a cross next to Christ, which thief would you be? The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You have an opportunity today. You've clearly heard me preach about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the importance of his death, burial, and resurrection. You've heard me talk about heaven and hell. There are some of you in this room today that need to call out to Christ and say, Father, forgive me. Christ made a way and I believe. And you need to lay claim on the salvation gift that Jesus has extended to you. You need to say yes to him. And so if that's you, there will be people right up front here that you can talk to or if a friend brought you that that has the ability to talk to you and sit down with you and share with you what the Bible has to say about salvation, then grab hold of them and talk with them. But there are some of you in the room today who know that there's something not right in your life and you're not sure if you're saved. You don't know where you're going when you die. There's others of you in the room today who've been hating on your gifts. You know that you're saved, that, that Christ has died for you, but you, you don't like what he's done in your life and, and you have not yet embraced how he's gifted you. Look, you don't need to be like the person sitting next to you. You don't need to be like me. You don't need to be like, any, you need to be like who he's made you to be. And learning that means like applying yourself to these things. And in time, he will expose you for who you really are and, and you'll be able to embrace that. But, but stop hating on yourself so much. And if you need to repent 
of the way you've been perceiving yourself and God's gifts, then you should do that today too. Whatever it is that we need to deal with, let's deal with that now as we worship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We love you. We, we can't wait each week to study it and to know it better. Um, God, I pray that you would help us all to see uh, what Christ has done for us and what it means to know you. Lord, for those who have not received you as Savior, Lord, I pray that people would, would repent, that they would humble themselves, and that they would be able to see you rightly, right now. And Lord, I pray that, that we would all uh, lean into your church and that we'd understand that this is the place where we discover who we really are. And um, that's, an exciting, that's an exciting prospect. Help us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.